Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com slash take charge. You could sell to a strategic and have the economics being similar to what I described, where you get cash up front and then roll over equity in the operating company that's backed by the private equity group. And the key in it is, can you get equity on comparable terms to the other equity holders? And that's pretty common. In the industry, they'll call it an add-on or a bolt-on to an existing platform. So just, just to equate it, you might have the original platform. It, it's a company was set up. It might have been a fairly large agency or MarTech company. And then they're going to increase value by going out and buying other agencies or more tech-related companies with the ability to offer them cash and equity. That's what we're seeing more and more happening in the more common MarTech space. Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Are you tired of relying on unpredictable referrals to grow your agency or B2B service company? Yes, Dan, I am. So maybe you hired a salesperson or a lead generation company and your efforts failed miserably. So here's the problem. When it comes to selling agency services and other consultative offers, cold outreach doesn't work. And that's because there's so much competition and noise. And the scarce resource is not differentiators, at least not with the prospects who don't know you yet. So what's the scarce resource? It's actually trust. And at Sales Schema, we've worked with over 100 agencies and B2B service companies since 2014 to help generate qualified meetings and keep the pipeline full so our clients can achieve their dreams. And I put everything we've learned into my book, Relationship Sales at Scale. And to learn more and pick up the book, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash R-S-A-S. Again, that's saleschema.com slash R-S-A-S. Today on the show, I'm very excited to welcome back David Tobin. So David is managing partner at Tobin Leff, which is a mergers and acquisition advisory and exit planning consulting firm that helps business owners maximize and monetize enterprise value, and they specialize in agencies and MarTech. So as I talk about in this interview, I really think that planning for an acquisition is a really healthy, tangible way to build a really strong business, even if you have no immediate plans to sell. So David covered a lot of ground. He talked about major liquidity events that agencies are experiencing. He talked about what the market for buying agencies looks like right now, as well as the major trends in selling them. He talked about what is happening in the context of a possible recession and high interest rates and all that fun stuff. He talked about the major growth drivers that allow the people that Tobin Left works with to get much bigger multiples. And on the negative side, he talked about a lot of the deal breakers that can come up at the last minute. So I think you're going to learn a whole lot from this interview. It's especially useful now. Without further ado, please give it up for David Tobin. David, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thank you for inviting me back. Yeah, and I love having you on because it's just great to see kind of how planning for an acquisition is a way to to make a, a good business, basically. And I think it's a lot of the times when people are doing business planning, at least I know when I am, it can get kind of like vague in terms of what you're trying to do. But if you have the specific goal, even if 
you may not achieve that goal for years, or even if you don't want to do that anytime soon, it makes everything else a lot easier, right? So I think that's acquisition planning is, is so important. But before we get into anything, for those that don't know you, can you talk a little bit about your background and what you're up to at Tobin Left? Sure. And thanks for providing that opportunity. Tobin Left, we're an M&A advisory, mergers and acquisitions advisory firm, helping owners sell their companies to their strategic buyers, or private equity groups. We also help clients if they want to build value. We help them acquire companies. There are 11 people in my group. I have six partners that include past agency owners, along with investment bankers and accountants, all focused. We have a mission, which is to help our clients maximize and monetize their life's work, their work as it relates to their business career, to turn that into personal wealth. That's who we are. We've been at it for 13 years. Yeah, that's that's great. And with that, I think probably a lot of listeners are wondering, like, what's what's keeping you busy these days? Like, what's the day to day like now and recessionary environment versus where it might have been a year or two ago? Sure. So, two years ago, coming out of the pandemic, the M and A market very very active. Pre pandemic, the economy was strong, interest rates were down, and we had a strong run with M and A transactions. Pandemic hits. The market goes on hold just because of the uncertainty, but the money didn't go away. So when everybody realized and felt we can get on with doing business, the M&A market got really active in 2021 and into 2022. When the uncertainty hit in 2022 about the economy and interest rates started to go up, early on, there was some pausing. The market then picked up over the last six months, even with the interest rates being higher. The higher interest rates means in some situations, offers may be lower because buyers who fund these acquisitions with debt, it costs them more. Not that much in relation to what we were sensing and seeing pre-current market conditions. So deals are getting done. Closed on a transaction. We're getting ready to announce one in a few weeks. Deals are getting done, not at the activity level that it was like a year ago. Got it. So if I understand right, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like there was this kind of this upswing with PPP money or post-COVID or whatever of just crazy activity. And now we're kind of going back to a cadence that's more like pre-COVID or how would you, or if not, how would you kind of put this alongside longer historic trends? Well, it's not quite at the level of pre-COVID because pre-COVID, interest rates were almost zero and and the economy was so strong. So there was so much money available. The industry calls it, quote, dry powder that was sitting there, both with strategic buyers and financial buyers, private equity groups and family offices. So there was so much money combined with low interest rates. Today, that money's still there. There's so much dollars, dry powder sitting there for acquisitions, but the higher interest rates put some pressure on valuations. So what we're seeing, deals are getting done. Buyers are being a little bit more stringent on the offers they put forth. But if somebody has a quality company, a marketing agency, a professional service firm, there's plenty of buyers out there if they have a solid company with a strong value proposition. 
Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I want to talk about both sides of the equation, you know, buyer and seller, but maybe just start with the seller first with agencies. What are you seeing out there now? Like, is there an archetype of a typical seller? You know, is it a boomer looking to retire? Is it a younger person? Is it all over the place? Like any any uh, trends you're seeing out there? It is all over the place. I mean, certainly fall into certain, if we're going to put them into groups or, or categories. With the demographics, there are the baby boomers who, I mean, they're 60 years old, 70. They want to move on. So, I mean, that just the demographics and the aging population increases the activity with sellers. Likewise, on, on the other end, you've got the entrepreneurs that see so many opportunities. They've built a successful company. Agency owners can attest their approach often for both strategic and financial buyers, their brokers, and they want to fill out, see what's out there in the marketplace. Good offers are causing them to say, I'm going to, quote, take chips off the table, or I'm going to sell now, even if I have to stay involved for a few years, and then move on to another venture or ventures. So it's the opportunist on one end, regardless of their age, and in turn, just the demographics with people that have owned the company for 20 or 30 years, they're, they've either built up enough wealth and they want to cash out or they're tired and it's time to sell. As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, how to take charge of your agency's future revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results. And you're going to see agency to brand email examples and get inspiration from high converting campaigns. So to get this 30 minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's a few different jumping off points from what you just said. I think one that comes to mind is I was talking to a friend, doesn't run an agency, but runs uh, personal brands. And he was has maybe an early stage opportunity to take chips off the table for cash. Can you talk about that a little bit when you have clients that might encounter an opportunity like that? In what cases do you think it makes sense to give up some amount of ownership for cash and to take chips off the table? In most situations, the ability to cash out a portion of their equity, the seller has to give up or sell the controlling interest in the company. It's hard to find minority investments in a service firm. They're out there. I mean, there's plenty of people that when I made the reference of taking chips off the table, what we're seeing more and more of are structures that have two liquidity events. The overused saying in my world of two bites at the apple. And the way the first liquidity event happens, typically the seller 
he or she will sell somewhere between 51 and 80% of their company for cash. Those are the chips off the table. The long-term upside is also the other 20 to 49% that they get in rollover equity in a larger entity or in this new platform that their company formed. And that 75% of our deals over the last two years have been that structure, coming where cash up front plus rollover equity with the idea that the new owner-investor combined with the original seller, they're going to use the buyer-investor's money to build this enterprise, to sell it in three to five years for the second bite at the apple, the second liquidity event. And that's really attractive to those owners that still have a bounce in their step, the energy that they want to lead a company. They've taken it maybe as far as they think they can on their own with their own money and resources. So that appeal of I can cash out a good chunk of my equity and have all these resources and have a stake in the second liquidity event is very attractive to many owners. Yeah, and let's let's dig into that a little bit. And there's I have a million questions kind of going in my head. <laughs> I think the first is, uh, and I know you have a white paper on this, which will get linked up. But can you talk about the buy side of that? Like, what do those acquiring parties tend to look like for those different levels of growth at the agency that they might be acquiring? Sure. So the two step, two opportunity liquidity plan. That's typically coming from either a financial sponsor, which is under that umbrella would be private equity groups, family offices, and what's called an independent sponsor. Those are, you know, they look like private equity groups. There's some nuances to those. Those types of buyers, they don't know how to run a marketing agency. They know how to bring their business experience, their capital resources, Their goal typically is they invest in a platform and the goal is to typically provide their investors along with their money, typically 3x, 300% return on their equity investment within a four to six year period. That's a pretty common structure. The unrelated to that though, which is also it's strategic buyers that are backed by a private equity group. So you'd be selling to a strategic operating company, but because they have the capital and the original seller also went through the experience of selling to a PE group, you could sell to a strategic and have the economics being similar to what I described, where you get cash up front and then rollover equity in the operating company that's backed by the private equity group. And the key in it is, can you get equity on comparable terms to the other equity holders? And that's pretty common. In the industry, they'll call it an add-on or a bolt-on to an existing platform. So just just to equate it, you might have the original platform. It's a company was set up. It might have been a fairly large agency or MarTech company. And then they're going to increase value by going out and buying other agencies or more tech-related companies with the ability to offer them cash and equity. 
That's what we're seeing more and more happening in the more common more tech space. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think with that, what level does the agency need to, to be at? I'm sure we have a lot of listeners at different stages. There's people with 50 plus person agencies that I'm sure have encountered this before. And then there's others that might be like, ah, this is such a pie in the sky thing. They probably wouldn't want my, my little old agency. What's the kind of floor and the ceiling and how does this play out at different stages? An important question. So look at the two general opportunities. One is the platform. The other would be the add-ons, the bolt-ons. So the platform is a sizable enough company with a vision for growth that the financial sponsors will say, we're going to build around your company. Historically, most financial sponsors would say their EBITDA, their pre-tax cash flow, has to be $5 million or more. That was... A few years ago, more and more of the potential investors, buyers would have a threshold of that. The market has changed considerably. Today, we can find sponsors that would be very enthusiastic, EBITDA of two million, two and a half million or more, providing there's a plan, a vision for growth. If they can see how the company can increase by 3x over a four or five, six year period, there are plenty of sponsors that would want to build around that idea, that company. So that would be on the platform side. The add on to an existing platform, it's not that there's so much a floor. I mean, typically, you know, a million dollars or more of EBITDA could help justify support all the expense for due diligence, quality of earnings report. So usually a million or more of EBITDA. However, we've experienced situations where we would have a client that would play a key strategic role and they don't have to have the earnings if they could really support that investment thesis or vision of the platform. And that's where the excitement is. If, if you do have this story, if the seller can say, with someone else's money back in resources, access to their clients, they could contribute to either their profit center or contribute to the enterprise's thesis. There's interest and deals are getting done. Even with smaller companies having the opportunity for cash and rollover equity. Yeah, that's super interesting. So with the platform, you're generally getting to a certain level and you know, looking to kind of fuel growth for a larger entity. With an add-on, it can be less. And I think the interesting thing is that key strategic role. And without putting you on the spot, are there any examples of that that or any stories you can talk about of people that slotted into that role and think and better, you know, especially in areas that might surprise people where that value can live? Yeah, I mean, I actually I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to to share some case studies. We just over the last three weeks had a great opportunity on an add-on to a platform, our client relative, you know, their billings weren't that high, but it turned out to be, they, they were very profitable. It helped because their margins were north of 30%, meaning net income as a percentage of billings. So, but in this situation, we found a strategic operating company that was not a Marcom agency. They were a consulting firm that played in the sector that are marketing 
our communications agency specialized in. So we did a consulting firm that was backed by a private equity group. We have a PR Marcom firm servicing those same sectors. Our client got a fabulous deal in our opinion as it relates to a multiple of their earnings far above what would have been paid from a normal strategic buyer. And our client got 70% of the money cash paid at closing. And the reason, Dan, it really supported, it was an example of what I touched on. They, they played a strategic role. They had good margins. They contributed to the buyer's plan to grow this and sell it in a few years. And that buyer really wanted our client. And it was really interesting because we also got offers from other Marcom strategics, but the economics were so much stronger because of the PE backing and the vision of the platform. Yeah, that's interesting. And would you mind talking a little bit about multiples, just kind of what those ranges look like and what impacts those? Sure. So if somebody has a, you know, you have to go on, they have a story to tell. That their margins are good, they're growing. We can come back to what are the key drivers that would, so assuming they have a good quote story, firms that have EBITDA of a million to $2 million, they should be looking at between a five to a seven X multiple of EBITDA. If they fit strategically and they're larger, certainly if they get up to a platform, you could be looking at between six to 10 X. Now, I don't want to just throw out numbers to to your listeners that there's got to be a number of reasons. If you have a service firm that's a solid company, but they're not growing at really strong rates or their margins aren't good, if it's overly dependent on the seller, you might be looking at multiples, three, four, five, six. When you asked the question, we were coming right off of my example and enthusiasm with the financial sponsored type buyers. Right. That makes sense. So the larger multi, I mean, it's a lot, a lot can impact those numbers, obviously, and a lot of variables there. But I guess when you see situations where it doesn't work or where somebody has unrealistic expectations for what they might stand to earn and you have to politely correct them, what does that correction generally look like? What are the sorts of things that you're saying, hey, here's, here's what you're not seeing about your business? Sure. I'll answer that in 30 seconds. Yeah. Owners of service firms, most do, but they have to appreciate they're not a technology company. They're not a SaaS. So what, what happens, we go through this occasionally, we'll have a prospective client, he or she wants to sell. We'll do what we call a market value analysis. We'll give them our experience of what we believe they'll sell for. And then they'll say, but my friend just sold for 10x. And it's a SaaS company or three times revenue. And, and that's not the world of a professional service firm. If somebody's going to pay you six, seven, or eight times earnings with after-tax dollars, you have to buy companies. They're only going to pay that if they can see how this business is going, the EBITDA, the earnings are really going to increase and the war. It plays a strategic role. That's how you start getting above 7x. So, so your question about how do you get into the higher end of those spectrums, it's let's 
put ourselves in the shoes of a buyer. You're going to want to have confidence that the business will transfer. It's sustainable. So you're going to look at how dependent is the company on the selling shareholders or stakeholders. Because there's always that concern. We wire transfer money at closing, and then the seller within a short period of time is on to something else. So they're really going to look hard at how dependent is the company. With size, it reduces the dependency on the selling shareholder. Because they're going to have an organization. They, they might have a sales arm. So reduce dependency, the systems, teams, processes to generate new business, repeat business from clients, retainers. They're, they're really going to be looking hard at sustainability. You certainly heard clearly from me about growth, historic growth, and having a vision. So much of this is selling that thesis, that investment thesis on how they can grow. That's what's going to gain, hopefully, enthusiasm. Back to this, how to make sure it's sustainable, incentive plans for key employees, phantom stock plans, change of control plans, with provisions that those key members of the leadership team, they only get their money if they stay with the acquiring company for some period of time, or they only get paid if there's an earn out as the sellers receive their proceeds. So having those incentive, quote, golden handcuff plans, buyers love those. The capabilities that are in strong demand in the marketplace that are not easily replicated, that adds to it. So if anybody's ever interested, on our website, we have a number of white papers on value drivers that buyers typically look to. We've got a piece on what are the key questions that buyers will ask when you go through that process. And some of the ones are the ones we just touched on, Dan. What's special about your business you can't easily replicate? How strong is the senior management team? Where's the new business coming from? That makes a lot of sense. And that'll be really helpful. And we'll get that linked up. And I think, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm in that threshold, like mil, million EBITDA, and I'm overwhelmed right now about, about all these things, all these boxes that need to get checked. What's, what's the best starting place? Like, what do you recommend is like, okay, if you're going to focus on just one thing to think about an acquisition in the next 24 months or whatever the time frame is, what do you focus on? Well, I wish I could give you just one thing. It, it's such, an important decision, series of decisions, if somebody's thinking about selling. They're going to be faced with, well, one, they're going to want to get their arms around, what is my business worth? And that's not that easy because you can't just go out and get a business valuation. That may not give you the answer. So I'd certainly re recommend they talk to a number of advisors, investment bankers, M&A advisory groups within their space because they'll be able to, like us, show case studies. They'll, in our case, we prepare a market value analysis. So they'll need to, my recommendation, talk to a number of people to really get a good feel for what is their company worth. Because that's going to drive, I mean, what are the estimated net proceeds? Will they have enough money to either retire or move on to their next venture? Going through that process will also help answer another important question, which is who will be the members of my advisory team to go through this process? You've got to, I mean, it's usually a team. You've got 
They're going to have either their attorney or they're going to get an M&A attorney. A group like ours that does investment banking, M&A advisory, that is typically will be part of it. On the accounting side, typically their current CPA gets involved. And then there's the decision internally who to involve early on, if anyone, in the process. And, you know, some people will involve members of their leadership team. Others will wait until the deal was closed to disclose it. So it's a lot when somebody's thinking about selling monetizing. So I wish I had, what's the one thing? I yeah. can't give you just the one. It, it, it is an experience, a process. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I obviously couldn't do that either. But I think one the, the one thing we see when we have selection bias is the repeatable new business system, you know, and thinking about owners getting out of the sales seat, which takes time and it takes really building a team and building a machine to do it and that kind of thing. So yeah. But how? But that said, how? What's been your experience with that in terms of how the sales function is affecting outcomes uh, when it's time to to sell the agency? It's such an important area, and depending upon the company, it sometimes. Well, if they have good results, it'll speak for itself. It doesn't mean they have a sales team per se, but you've got to look hard at where does their top line come from. If they buyers, that this is important value drivers. Experienced buyers early on will say, send me your client list, billings per client per year for the past three to five years. Now, they're not interested so much on who the names are. You can take the names off if you want to make it anonymous at this stage. What they're going to look for is repeat business between the clients, and they're going to look at client concentration. Is there risk that one client represents X percent. So those two are really important, being able to demonstrate you can keep clients because contracts don't mean anything because when you look at the contracts, they all say the client can terminate with a 30-day or 90-day notice. So being able to say I've got X clients on retainer, that's great, but that's not as important as truly demonstrating Look at our clients that started with us in 2020. X percent are still with us today in 2023. Buyers love that. And then you don't want to have a client that represents 30, 40 plus percent of your total billings. So so those are two. Another important one I should have mentioned a moment ago, it relates to what you just asked, Dan, but margins are super important. Margins being... Net income or EBITDA as a percentage of fee income. If somebody's got a firm that's doing 10% or less, buyers are not going to be that interested because when they do their analysis, they won't get their money back within a reasonable period of time. If your margins after fair market salaries for the principals in our opinion, in most situations, the goal should be north of 20%, you know, if not even higher. I mean, that, that becomes one of the most important value drivers. Right. That, that makes a lot of sense. And to, to dig into one of the things you said, so you talked about client concentration not exceeding you know, a significant portion of your income. How do you feel about vertical concentration and what that means? Good question. If in many situations... Staking a claim, being a true specialist in a sector, an industry, 
that plays well. That, that's good because it'll show their expertise that typically contributes to their ability to land clients. Many of our clients have a niche and we, we promote that. We've also witnessed success where it was horizontal, but they had very strong capabilities. We had a great transaction with the client because they had a super strong media planning center that they were very profitable with their digital media in-house, regardless of the, the vertical. So there's different ways to get there. Certainly being a major player in a niche or a vertical will help. That example I talked about with the add-on, I mean, they were super strong within a vertical under the technology umbrella. Not just to say we specialize in technology, but they were really strong in a certain capability under tech. Right. That that makes a lot of sense. And that's interesting. And it makes sense that it would be, you know, the specialization would be something that makes you makes you stronger. But I think some of the objections you might hear are, you know, hey, what if if you focus on gyms and then COVID happens, then, you know, you're out of out of commission for a year or something like that. Right. So you're right. And you have to really pick your horse closely. Can, yeah. can I use it? This take 30 seconds. Yeah. A client of ours where we had a very successful transaction, he shared this with me and I loved it. He said that years ago, one of his friends or advisors said to him, he said, he asked him a question, Ed, do you know how to have a growing business? Ed responded to Mike, no, Mike, how do I do it? And he said, quote, if you want to have a growing company, sell into a growing market. Right. It's the hot dogs is the baseball game sort of analogy. I, I, I'm going to butcher it, but the guy with the hot dog stand after after the Yankees game lets out has the, the best restaurant in the world. Yes. <laughs> so the quality of the hot dogs, right? So well, that, that's another good analogy to, to support it. But, yeah. but to your point, being a specialist in either a vertical market or having great capabilities that can be horizontal, the proof is, does it help you make money? Are your margins good? Are you growing? Just to say, we're specialists. We have a client, they specialize, for example, in a certain professional services. And they've been in that sector for years, but they, they don't make money. We So what good does that, I shouldn't say what good, there is some good because somebody might buy them who's in there, but they're not going to pay a premium because they haven't been able to demonstrate that that specialty translates to margins, EBITDA, growth. And I hate to always bring it back to that, but that's what buyers are going to look for. Right, as, as they should. And I guess to kind of put that question on us, because we've it sounds like we've sort of specialized on marketing and advertising and Marcom. How do you feel about the industry now in terms of its growth potential and so on? Like if you were starting fresh, would you focus on Marcom or somewhere else at this point? My partners and I, we, we talk about this periodically and it's rough for us because, I mean, we all know during recessionary times, there's that saying that marketing is the first to get cut and it is cyclical with the economy. But at the same time, we've specialized in it. So it helps us have a story to tell and land client engagements. So we've made the decision to, during tough times, we're committed to this market. 
we just have to invest more to tell our story. So it, right. yeah, it's hard to get out of it once you've made that decision to specialize. Yeah, definitely. And there's always kind of a grass is always greener thing. And all, all these niches have their own idiosyncrasies that you have to learn, right? If you get into You do. And you don't just say, you know, we've been in Marcom. Now we're going to go to engineering firms. It's not like we're going to just show up and it, that market's going to say, we've been waiting for you. There are players there that do a great job with M&A work. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's definitely, there's huge upside and a lot of work that goes into picking a new niche. So I think that bears repeating. So David, I guess with the time we have left, um, I know you, can you talk a little bit more about this, this white paper and what you guys have done there? And we'll make sure to get that linked up as well. Thank you, Dan, for the, for that opportunity. A couple more or more recent pieces, content, maybe of interest to some of your listeners. We put out a piece on who are the buyers for agencies valued between 15 and $50 million. You know, so that we just recently, they're all on our website, which is tobinleff.com, T-O-B-I-N-L-E-F-F.com. We also put out a piece recently, seven best practices, in our opinion, for managing your company today for a lucrative exit payday in the future. It's a shorter title called Seven Best Practices for Managing for a Rewarding Exit Payday. We're a little partial. We, we wrote it, but it, it's regardless of the size of your company, what you can do today, even if you're a few years out. Those would be two of the pieces that we recently published that may be of interest. Awesome. We'll get that linked up. And I think it's always a good thing to, again, plan around an acquisition, even if it's way off in the horizon, right? Because it makes everything else so much stronger. So David, thanks again so much for your time and let's do it again before long. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.